Happy Mother's Day. Celebrate mom today. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful, what a beautiful day. Isn't this great? Love it. Romans 13 is where we're going to be. We're going to talk a little bit about government. How's that for an exciting topic? I can see the thrill building up already. Yes, I love it. I like to keep my audiences riveted. No. Romans 13, Paul has some good things for us in relationship to how do we respond to the government that is put over us. That's the first half of the chapter, verse seven verses. The second half of the chapter talks about how do we relate to people, just brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as our neighbor, just people we come in contact with. So there's kind of two halves to this chapter um, that we're gonna be going through today. Romans 12, when I spoke a couple weeks back, it ended with the idea of showing love to those that are outside of the Christian circle even those that have it maybe in their aim to do us harm, to show love, overcome evil with good. That was the last verse in chapter 12. We have the gospel, the good on our side. We understand the truth of the gospel. There's a lot of evil out there. Paul says, look, overcome that evil with the gospel, with the good. So our government today, we're gonna be looking at for God and country. I've entitled this sermon. I think when it comes to a relationship with our government, there's three improper ways to do it, three extremes maybe that we can go to. And maybe you struggle with these. The first one I kind of refer as defiantly independent, maybe anti-government. Speaking of the government in very antagonistic and contempt sort of ways, like it has absolutely no value in our lives, and I don't think that's appropriate based on Scripture because the commands of Scripture tell us what we're going to be looking at today to show honor and respect um, to our government and to pray for those who are in authority over us. So I, don't, I think when we have that kind of an attitude, we, we're losing sight of what God's Word teaches about our relationship to our government. Then there's the one kind of in the middle, the uninvolved indifference. I'm a Christian, I belong to God's kingdom, I'm not of this world, so who cares about the government? Who cares about what's going on around me in politics and all of that? And to be honest with you, that's the one that maybe I struggle with the most of these three a little bit. There's times where it's like, hey, I know who's in control of this mess, so I don't really care anymore, and I don't think that's the proper attitude either because what we're leaving out there is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, speaks to our culture, it speaks to our world, the mess that we do live in, and it brings light to that. And I think when we just bail out and say, I don't care anymore, we're losing sight of the gospel and the great commission that we're all given. There's a third uh, view that I think is extreme to avoid also, and it's, it's the overly dependent side. Maybe... In our culture, this happens sometimes where people look to the government as a savior. All of our issues, all of our problems are gonna be solved as long as we vote the right person in, right? How's that been working? <laughs> I think sometimes we have that mentality that, man, okay, all of our problems are gonna be solved now if we just get that right person in charge, for goodness sakes, you know. That last person didn't do such a good job, so let's bring somebody new in. And 
it, we go back and forth in our politics. We know that to be true. I think when we have that view, we lose sight of the sovereignty of God. The reality, who's really in charge? Who's really above this? We lose sight of that sometimes in the political day-to-day shuffle that we go through. So I think it's, it's good to have a balance and understanding that, yeah, government is important. It really is. It's important that we're involved, that we vote, that we speak up for what's right in our culture, but that we don't overly depend upon our government and that we don't speak of them in such hostile anim- with such animosity. Dave Barry, who is a comedian, he wrote a, for a syndicate newspaper columnist and author had a lot of funny things to say. I haven't seen much of his stuff around anymore, but I used to kind of enjoy some of his things. He said, people who want to share their political views with you almost never want you to share yours with them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is true. Thank you, Dave Barry, for speaking that. You know, we all fall into that sometimes. We want to speak our view, but we don't want to really hear from the other person so much. And I think there's something true there. Here's the reality today is, as Christians, we are not going to agree on this one, on politics, on all of it. We might agree on some of it, and we probably should, but the reality is we're just not going to agree on this. In fact, you know, I avoid it sometimes because I know there's going to come up some issues (laughs) if I start, just bring it out in discussion. There's going to be some conflict between me and a brother, and so there's times where I just kind of like let it go. It's okay. We might not agree on all the politics, but you know what we can agree on is our attitude towards our government because Scripture speaks to it right here, Romans 13. So let's look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 7. Here's what he says about our government. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? Verse 1. Verse 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. You do what's right, guess what? But for those who do wrong... Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Uh Uh-oh, and now I'm really getting into some. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So the rule here that Paul says in verse 1, the principle is that all authority in our lives is established by God. All. Not just government as in the United States government or the state of Oregon or city government, but all authority is established and put there by God. And so when we rebel against that, in a sense, 
we're rebelling against him. Think of it this way. God established the three basic institutions in our life. The first one in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, was the family, marriage and family, Genesis 2, where he created Eve, and then he brought them together as husband and wife, and that's where it started. So that institution was established by God early on for his glory. The second one in the book of Genesis is government. Later on in the book of Genesis, it speaks of government ruling over people to care for their needs, to bring peace, to, to look out for them. So government was established by God. And then later in the New Testament, we have the third institution that was established by God, the church. This is his institution, the bride of Christ, right? Think about submitting, how that applies to those three institutions. Family, children, obey your parents, honor your father and mother. Today is Mother's Day. It's a wonderful way to honor and obey is good, right? As children, we learn that. Why? Because that's God's institution, and God is our father. We are his children. That's why we're to obey, because it's a, God established it that way, and it's good. And we learn that way. How about marriage? Ephesians 5 speaks of this husband-wife relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because husbands are better than their wives? Are you kidding? <laughs> really? I mean, no, absolutely not. It's because it's a, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.24 tells us that as the church submits to Christ, so are wives to submit to their husbands. Behind the picture of marriage is the picture of Christ and his church, his bride. That's what the whole relationship is about. So what does it tell husbands? Love your wives as Christ loves his church. So behind those responsibilities that we have in marriage is the picture of Christ and his church, his bride, the people of God. That's why we do this. Again, it's that relationship that God has established. Then we get into government, understanding God is the king. We're a part of his kingdom. Ultimately, he is the one in charge over everything, so we submit to that. Then in the church, I love Ephesians 5 because we leave out Ephesians 5.21 a lot. Right before it tells wives to submit to their husbands, what does it say? Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. In the church, in our relationships with each other, in our marriages, here at the church, in our lives, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. So submitting is a part of it, and that's the rule, and that's the authority established by God. Submission means to willingly put yourself under another voluntarily. That's what the Greek word literally means. It's a military term. It's a rank thing. Submission is to be given willingly, but not indiscriminately. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. It's a willing, submitting is a willing thing, but not without thought, not without thinking, and not, it's not always the case. There are times where we can step out from under that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more. Paul refers to the government as God's servant. Three times he mentions that term. Government is God's servant for your good. I want you to think about our government 
the good that our government does for us. Because oftentimes we overlook that, right? We think about the negative things. The road that I walked on, I don't drive to church, I walk, but I still have to walk on it. It's paved. Taxes cover that, right? Bridges that are pretty important as I go across rivers here in Portland. Parks, beautiful parks that we have here in Oregon. A lot of our taxes go to that type of a thing. How about things like Social Security? That's a pretty important, helpful thing when you retire. Uh, How about police and fire, public education, things like military protection? Those are government things for God's servants for our good. So there's a lot of good that sometimes we take for granted or we lose sight of, but they're there for our good. So what is the motive that Paul introduces here in verses 1 through 4? I put for wrath's sake. And Paul's argument is this, look, if you do what's right, if you do good, you don't have to fear the government. If you stay in line, you toe the line, you don't step out of that, you're going to, relatively speaking, you're going to be in pretty good shape. However, if you do what's not right, guess what? They're going to come after you. They don't bear the sword in vain. They are God's instrument of wrath. So there's this whole idea of, look, you have no need to fear if you're not doing anything wrong. That's good to know. There's this, it's this wrath, for wrath's sake, submit to the government. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 14, Peter kind of ties into this. He says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? If you're doing what's right. But even if you should suffer for what is right, there will be times where you're doing what's right and you're persecuted. Jesus spoke to that. You're still blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. There was one time I remember as a young child growing up in the little town, Dilly. Not much to do on a given Saturday in Dilly, okay? There's just really nothing to do. So me and a neighbor kid were doing something. I can't remember what it was, but it was just a little bit, wasn't illegal. (laughs) But I know that it was not probably in line with what I should have been doing because we were near the school, which is right next to my house, and all of a sudden around the corner on the road came a police officer in his car. And me and my buddy literally like took off in different directions running. And being not real smart, I chose to run down the road. (laughs) He took off through somebody's backyard and got away, no problem, but the police officer just followed me and got on his little walkie-talkie and said, uh, pull over, I, you know, stop, desist. And, he, and he, I'll never forget this. And I just had a little guilt in my mind. That's why I was running. And he pulled me over and he goes, what's going on? And I said, um, nothing. I was just, you know, goofing around, doing this. And he said, he says, let me give you just some advice for your life. He says, if you're not doing anything wrong, please do not run from a police officer. It just, it doesn't look good. And I said, thank you. Yeah, that, good point. That's Paul's argument. Look, if you're doing what's right, you don't have to fear there. That's for wrath's sake. Submit. He gives us a second reason, though, in verse 5. 
Look what he says there. He says, therefore, it's necessary to submit, not only because of possible punishment, that's the wrath side, but as a matter of conscience. So it's not just about not getting caught and not getting in trouble, but it's about doing what is right for your conscience sake. You know what's right and wrong. It's right to submit to the government. In Acts 5.29, Paul the, not Paul, excuse me, Peter and the apostles were being, they were under arrest basically and being told by the religious authorities at that time that they were not to spread the gospel, knock it off. Whatever you're talking about, this Jesus of Nazareth, stop. You're creating a ruckus amongst the people and we want you, to, so they were arrested and told not to preach and they simply said we can't do that. Acts 5.29 is the verse. Peter, the other apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. Submission is the rule, but there's times obviously where we need to step out from underneath our government for conscience sake because we know that what they're asking us to do is not right. We have conscientious objection built in to our laws, into our culture. We understand this idea. Our conscience is important. Obeying God is more important because he is the king than what our authorities on this earth tell us. And there's times where we have to step out from underneath that. The NBA playoffs are starting today, and I'm excited. I don't know about how the rest of you feel. The Cavaliers, the Celtics, the Warriors, I forgot who they're playing. The Rockets, of course, yes. These are gonna be some great series. I love watching NBA, and what happens is there's a call made on the court. The ball went out of bounds, and they'll, they have to decide one direction or the other, right? So the call on the court is this. And then if the other team, or if it's in within a certain time frame, they can go over and review. So they walk over to the, to the scores table, and they look on this monitor, and they take an eternity and they look at, look at it in slow motion, and they can overturn a decision that was made on the court. And I look at it kind of that way with this. The idea of submitting to our government is kind of the call on the court. However, maybe under further review, under certain situations, we might need to say, I can't do that, and I will not do that, because God tells me not to do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Many of you know his story. Joel Burnell can tell you the whole story, but basically when Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany, and as a preacher, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke out against them, said this is not right, what's going on is not right. He was imprisoned, later his life was taken, but he spoke against Nazism and what Adolf Hitler was doing in, in the world at that point. So there's times where we need to step out so paying taxes, verse six, and paying revenue, fees on goods and services, what do we do with that one? Again, we're supporting God's servants. Jeff Galt read Matthew twenty-two fifteen to 22. If you wanna put that up there, I'm not gonna read it again, but it's an interesting situation. Jesus was, they were trying to trap Jesus. Okay, here's what's going on. The Pharisees are over here. They're big into the following the Jewish law. Then we got 
the, the Herodians over here, they're big on supporting the Roman side. They're really at odds with each other, but they have one common enemy, and that's Jesus. So they come together, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and they're, they're going to try to trap him with a good question. Jesus, what do you do with this whole tax thing? And Jesus is brilliant. In fact, it says there at the end of this, this passage that they marvel at his wisdom. He just took the denarius and he said, whose inscription is on this? Now let me explain the situation a little bit, what's going on here. We have the imperial tax charged by the Romans. This was a tax that was only placed or levied against those who were under the authority of the Romans, not on their own people. So as a Jewish citizen, you were taxed by the Roman government. The Roman people were not. So imagine living in the same culture there and knowing that that person over there, simply because they were Roman, did not have to pay this, but you did. So that was tax number one. Tax number two, by your own people, the Jews, the temple tax. To take care of the temple, to make sure that it was taken care of, there was a tax laid upon them by their own people, the Jews, called the temple tax. And if that wasn't bad enough, then you had these tax collectors, and we know the situation. Their own people hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people, and oftentimes they would charge a little extra. That's why they were so hated. So you've got, you've got the temple tax, you've got the imperial tax, then you've got what's going on with the tax collectors a little bit there. You can imagine, they say, the estimates are that 50% or more of their income in that day was given away in taxes. Imagine, 50% or more. That is a heavy, heavy, heavy tax. The attitude was not very good in that time. So Jesus spoke to it, and I, he just holds up this coin. Whose image is on it? The denarius, by the way, is what they would have paid the tax with. It's a day's wage, once a year, went to the Roman government. So he, would, he held it up. Whose image? Caesar on one side. Caesar claimed to be God, by the way. Then you flip it over on the tail side, and there was an inscription to a deity, kind of a high priest of Roman paganism on the other side. So think of it as a Jew, you're basically breaking the first two Ten Commandments. No other God before me, no graven image on the other side. So it was a complete insult to the Jewish people. But Jesus says, you know what, trust God on this. Render unto Caesar, his inscription's on the coin for goodness sake, render unto him what's, what's due him. Render unto God what's due to God. He left it there. Submit to your government, is what he was saying. Trust God, it's gonna be okay. Profound words of wisdom there by Jesus. Give to everyone what you owe them, in verse seven. Respect to those that you owe respect, honor to those you, you owe honor. So we owe government taxes and revenue money. We also owe them respect and honor. There's a great verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.7. The people have been carried away into captivity for 70 years, and God's word comes to them in captivity, and this is what he says in Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. 
yeah, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they're not your, the government that you want to be under, but that's where you find yourself, so pray. Because if it goes well for them, guess what? It's going to go well for you as Jewish people. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, I urge them, first of all, Paul says, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people. Let's just do this as a general rule, but then he says, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's that same idea. Look, pray for our government, pray for those who have authority over us, because if it goes well for them, it's going to go well for us. It's a good principle. And it's amazing how when you put somebody on your prayer list, it's much more difficult to despise them and hold them in contempt, is it not? If I'm praying for them and I really desire that God would work through them. The story of the Old Testament, by the way, is, is God's story of how he used kings that knew nothing of God, in fact, could care less about God, but how God used them for his purposes. The whole Old Testament is just that grand story of that. So keep that in mind in this idea. So this idea of taxes, Ray Stedman, who is a great, was a great Bible teacher, I came across this. This is, for, this is for Josh. So I told him I would give this, but I thought this was humorous. So here it is. It has to do with taxes. He said, my income had been so low for a long time that I didn't have to pay any taxes. This is Ray Stedman. But gradually I, it caught up and I finally had to pay. I remember how I resented it. In fact, when I sent my tax form in, I addressed it to the Infernal Revenue Service. <laughs> they never answered, although they did accept the money. The next year, I had improved my attitude just a bit, so I addressed it to the Eternal Revenue Service. But I have repented from all those sins, and I now hope to pay my taxes cheerfully. Ray Stedman. I thought that was pretty good. Josh, that's for you. The Infernal Revenue Service. On Mother's Day, honoring and respecting, the family was God's first institution. And we honor, we respect moms and dads, parents, because they were the first to teach us about authority. What does that mean to live under authority? That's where we learn it first. Now, it doesn't mean in our world that the moms were necessarily the best moms. It doesn't mean the dads were the best dads. Maybe you didn't have a mom or a dad. But on this day, we honor them because it's right. It's right to do that. There's a Spanish proverb, an ounce of mother is worth more than a ton of priest. <laughs> or pastor. You could put pastor in there, too. A, an ounce of mother is worth more than a ton of priest. I think that's profoundly true. Listen to your moms today. So verses one through seven deal with our relationship with our government. A debt we owe to our government, submit to them, respect them, pay, pay our taxes, pay our revenue. It's okay. It's okay. We can trust God on that one. But now he's gonna shift gears in verse eight. Look what he says here. Let no debt remain outstanding except continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandments 
there may be are summed up in this one. He's going to quote Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Isn't that beautiful? Continuing on in verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissent and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So it starts with what is our motivation for loving our neighbor? In verses 8 through 10, it's, it's just simply for love's sake. That's why. It's interesting, verse 7, it's, it ends in verse 7 with give to everyone that you owe whether it be taxes, revenue, honor, respect. And then verse 8 seems to be a contradiction. It says, owe no man anything, if you have the King James Version, or let no debt remain outstanding. So this kind of owe, give what you owe, don't owe in verse 8. Don't owe anything. So is Paul saying, a lot of people say, well, look at verse 8 here. Paul's saying never have debt in your life. Never take out a loan because it's wrong. Is that true? Well, Dave Ramsey might say yes. (laughs) I don't think Paul's giving us financial advice here so much as he's saying, look, there is going to be a debt that all of us will owe and we'll continually owe it, and that debt is to love one another. I can pay it, though. Maybe there's the issue with debt is if, if I am living above my means, that's wrong, If I don't have the means to pay back my debt, then that's a problem, obviously, because it's going to be ongoing. However, the one debt all of us will have, and it's a good kind of debt, is the continuing debt of loving each other. This idea of love, verse 8, it's about one another. It's the fellow believers. That's, again, that's the easier part. People that are, we share faith in Jesus Christ with. But 9 and 10, he spreads it wider, and he says, love your neighbor. What neighbor means, and we know that from the Good Samaritan parables, anyone we see that has a need, anyone, okay? We come in contact, we're aware of a need, love them. So it's out, he includes everyone here we're speaking of. If we love, we fulfill the law. Jesus said that in Matthew 22, 37, and 40. He says, you can summarize the Old Testament law with two commandments, and we know what they are, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that really summarizes the first four commandments in the old, of the 10. Re- love and respect for God, it starts there, that's primary. But the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So commandment number five, honoring father and mother through 10, is all about how I love my neighbor. Jesus got it right. Starts with our love for God, continues with our love for each other, our neighbor. Love, whoever loves has fulfilled the law. When I love God, I won't sin against my neighbor. It just kind of works that way. Love does no harm to a neighbor. James 2.8 refers to the royal law. 
James says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. You're fulfilling the law when you love your neighbor. You're, again, that's, so that's a motivation for our relationship is always love. But he goes a step deeper in motivation in verse 11. He says, do this, live a life of love with your neighbor, but understand the time, the present time. Greek, in Greek, there's two words for time. The first one is chronos, chronology. We get our word chronology from. It's the watch, it's the calendar, it's minutes, seconds, months, years that we chronologically measure time in. But there's a second word for time in Greek. It's kairos. It's season. Understand the season that you're in. And that's the word being used here. Paul says, understand the season you're in. What is the season? Well, the return of the Lord is soon. It's imminent. It could happen anytime. Understand that and live in that. That's our motivation for loving other people. Look, we have an opportunity here. The Lord is going to return any time. We should always be living our life in light of his return, should we not? Paul really believed, and the early authors of Scripture really believed that Christ was going to return in their lifetime, and they lived that way, and they wrote that way. And I think they actually believed that, that he was coming back before they died. Our salvation is nearer now than when it was. What does that mean? There's really different aspects of our salvation. Coming to Christ, our justification, then our sanctification. That's living our Christian life. That's what we're doing now. But there's a future aspect, the glorification, going to be with him. The presence of sin is gone forever, all eternity. That is part of our salvation too. That part is nearer now than when it was when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, right? It's near now. Live in light of the return. My mom used to always yell at me in the morning getting ready for school, wake up and get dressed. Have you ever heard that? As a kid getting ready for school, sometimes it was the second time. A little more emphatic, wake up and get dressed. Well, in these verses, verses 11 through 14 here, we have wake up and get dressed. Let's check it out. Verse 11 it tells us, so understanding where we're at, the Lord's going to return any time, what do we do? The hour's already come, it's time to wake up. Wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Being asleep here is, refers to being just kind of morally lax, not concerned about what's going on around us, kind of lacking any kind of purpose in our life. Paul says, that's no way to live. It's time to wake up, be sober, get with the program, snap out of it. There's different ways to say it, but let's wake up. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 6. In 1 Thessalonians, it's a book where Paul is writing in view of the return of Jesus, and he's dealing with those end-time events. So here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. 
You are children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. There it is. But let us be awake and let us be sober. It's time to wake up. I think sometimes as Christians, it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, humdrum, routine, and lose sight of what it's all about. It's time to wake up. The second thing, time to clean up. Verse 12 and 13. The night, it's over. The day is almost here. The night, all this darkness in our world, it's coming to an end. The day is coming. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness, put on, this is the first time he's gonna mention the idea of putting on something. Put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Time to clean up. Put off that junk. Put on the armor of light. We're children of light. That's what we're called to. He mentions three pairs of sins in verse 13. He kind of puts them into pairs. There's six total. The first two, carousing and drunkenness, those are kind of the public sins. Those you can see. <laughs> person's out carousing and they're drunk. That one you can probably see. It's a little more public. Then there's the sexual immorality, debauchery, which, by the way, debauchery is kind of one of those excessive indulgence in sexual pleasure. More on the private side. These are things kind of behind the scenes in dark, out of the sight of others that are going on in our lives, the private sins that we need to get rid of. Then there's the third pair, dissension, jealousy. Those are relational or personal sins. Arguments, jealousies that I have in relationship with someone else. Get rid of that junk. Romans 12, 18, as much as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, right? Get rid of those things that divide, those arguments, the jealousies that can clog up your relationships. It's time to get rid of those things. I call those the respectable sins as Christians. I think sometimes we look at drunkenness, carousing, sexual immorality and go, yeah, yeah, that's really bad, you know, but... How often do we easily buy into our little petty jealousies, little things that divide us? They're more respectable sometimes in the Christian circles. They're all sin. Get rid of it. Put on light. And then the last thing, we wake up, we clean up, we put on that armor of light, and then we grow up. Look at what verse 14 says. Such a beautiful verse. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's Galatians 3.27. We've been going through Galatians in our adult education hour. It says, be baptized into Christ. Clothe yourselves with Christ. It's a lot of things involved with that. One is allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life and get rid of the sin, power over darkness, But Romans 8.29 tells us that part of God's desire and his purposes in our lives is to carve into our lives the character of Jesus Christ. As we mature, we become more and more like him. It's conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8.29. 
It's maturing into who we are. But you can't clothe yourselves with Jesus Christ if you don't know Jesus Christ. It starts with salvation. It starts with understanding he is the Savior. And when we speak of clothing ourselves with Jesus Christ, we're talking about putting on his righteousness, clothing ourselves with him, being in him, his righteousness, not mine. The book of Romans, I mentioned this when I started preaching on this book a while back. Um, It impacted a lot of great people historically and continues to do so. Martin Luther, chapter 1, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. That changed his life when he understood it's about faith, it's not about earning by works favor with God. It's justif- we're justified by faith, not by works. It changed the course of the church in history with Martin Luther. Well, another great church leader is Augustine. So I wanted to read this. This chapter impacted him. It says, back in the year 386, a 31-year-old professor was relaxing in the backyard of his home in Milan, Italy. As he dozed off, he heard a child singing a familiar children's song, Take Up and Read. He looked at his Bible laying nearby and decided to take the child's advice. He opened it up. He opened it up by chance, in quotes, to Romans 13, interestingly enough. He read about turning away from sexual immorality and clothing himself with Jesus Christ. Verse, the final verse there. He found himself deeply convicted of his playboy antics through the years. He surrendered his life to Christ right there in his backyard. Later, he would write a number of brilliant theological works the most famous being his book called Confessions, one of the classics. Augustine of Hippo became a bishop of the church and one of the most famous early church fathers. Today, as we've read all this, don't miss this. How do we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ? We simply receive him as our savior. We understand that righteousness is by faith alone in him. That's where it starts. And then we live in that. We stay clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you, if you haven't done that in your life, to take it seriously, just like Augustine did that moment. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off the junk. Get rid of the junk. Only in Christ can we do that. He's the only one that can give us the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. So I encourage you to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you haven't already done that, and then live in it day to day. God bless.